The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 6 and reading the first four verses. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and thy mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now we are dealing particularly this morning with the fourth verse. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We began looking at this verse last Sunday morning. And uh, I was emphasizing that here we see another perfect example of the balance of the scripture and the supreme fairness of the scripture. The scripture is never one-sided. So many have thought that it's always against the children and that it's a repressive, tyrannical system. So many adolescents think that. And of course, it is probably because their parents haven't paid sufficient attention to this fourth verse. But the scripture is never one-sided. And while it reminds the children of their duty of giving obedience to their parents and honoring their parents. It also has something to say to the parents. For the parents sometimes make it almost impossible for the children to carry out the commandments of God. So the scriptures go on and say, and you parents, you fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. And we were dealing with that last Sunday morning. In other words, the exhortation of the apostle to the parents has got two sides to it. There's, there's the negative. We considered what we mustn't do. We mustn't do anything to exasperate our children. We mustn't irritate them. We mustn't provoke them. No, no, that's the negative. Well, what are we to do? Well, here he puts it positively to us. Bring them up, he says, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And it is to that that I'm calling your attention this morning. This uh, positive side of the apostle's injunction to the parent. Now, the very way in which he puts it is interesting. Bring them up, he says. And that's another way of saying, rear them. Nourish them to maturity. In other words, the first thing that parents have got to do is to realize their responsibility for the children. As I was saying last Sunday morning, they're not our property. They don't belong to us. They're given to us by God for a while. What for? Well, not that we may get what we want out of them and use them simply to please ourselves or to gratify our own desires. No, no, it's, this is the task. They've got to be reared, brought up, nurtured, prepared, not only for life, but especially the preparation of the soul for its relationship to God. Life, of course, we see from injunctions such as this is a tremendous thing. And there is nothing that is so sad and tragic about the world today as the failure of the masses of the people to realize the greatness of life. What a tremendous thing it is to live as an individual, still more so when you come thus to the realm of the home and the family. What a great conception this gives us of parenthood. The business of parenthood, its function. And here the apostle tells us that uh, 
we should always be viewing it in this way, that here we are given these children that we may bring them up, we may rear them, we may train them. You notice, you read in the papers constantly, about the care and the attention which people give to rearing various types of animals. It's not an easy thing to train a winner, whether it's a horse or a dog or whatever it is. It's a, it's a thing to which you have to give much time and attention. You have to consider the diet, you have to consider the exercise, you have to consider the bedding, you have to protect this animal from various hazards. And you see, it's quite a big business, and people pay large sums of money, they spend a great deal of time and of thought in just bringing up, rearing an animal, that it may become a prize winner or a notable illustration. One is sometimes almost given the impression that very little such time and care and attention and thought is given to the rearing of children. That's the reason why the world is as it is this morning and why we are confronted by some of these acute problems in a social sense in this country at this present time. If only people gave as much thought to the rearing of their children as they do to the rearing of animals and of flowers, things would be very different. They read books about these other matters. They want to know exactly how it's done. They listen to talks about it. How much time is given, I say, to the consideration of this great question of rearing children, taken for granted, done anyhow somehow? And the consequences are, I say, what are too painfully obvious to everybody at this present time. Well, now then, he says, you parents, this is what you've got to do. Sit back for a moment. Sit down and consider what you're doing. When the child comes, say to yourself, now then, I'm the guardian and the custodian of this soul. What a dread responsibility. Men, you see, in business and in professions, are well aware of the great responsibility upon them in their professions, the decisions they have to take, and it is perfectly true, of course. But all I'm asking is this. Are they aware of infinitely more with respect to their own children? Do they give the same amount of thought and attention and time to it? Does that weigh as heavily upon them as the right responsibilities which they feel in these other realms? The apostle says that we must regard this as the greatest business in life, the greatest matter which we ever have to handle and to transact. Bring them up. Rear them, nurture them. Then we take this next word of his, bring them up, he says, in the nurture and admonition. Two words he uses, and they're very interesting words. The difference between them is just this, that the first one, the nurture, is more general than the second. It means the whole process in general of the cultivation of the mind and of morals. It's the totality of nurturing, rearing, bringing up the child. It includes, therefore, general discipline. And as the authorities all are agreed in pointing out, its emphasis is upon acts. The second word, the admonition, has reference more to words which are spoken. But this is a more general term, this nurture. And especially in acts, everything that we do for the children is included under this word nurture. There it is, then, this whole 
process in general of uh, the cultivation of the mind and the spirit and the, the morals and the moral behavior, the whole personality of, of this child. Now, that's our task. That's the business, is to look upon this, to care for it, to guard it. You remember we've had this uh, same term as we were dealing with the relationship of uh, husbands uh, and wives where we were told that uh, the Lord himself nourisheth and cherisheth the church. No man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. Now, that is the same sort of thing that we are told to do here with respect to children. General discipline. And then you come to admonition. That, I say, is the same thing, only that it has its emphasis upon words. Because uh, there are these two sides, are there not, to this matter? General conduct and behavior, things we have to do in action. But then in particular, in addition to that, there are certain admonitions that should be addressed to the child. Words of exhortation, words of encouragement, words of reproof, words of blame. Admonition includes all those. Everything that we say to the children in actual words where we are defining positions and indicating what is right or wrong, encouraging, exhorting, and so on. That's the meaning of the word admonition. So they're to be read in the nurture and the admonition, and then, of course, the most important thing of all, of the Lord, the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And this is where Christian parents and their duty towards their children are to be found in an entirely different category from everybody else. In other words, this remark addressed to uh, Christian parents is not simply uh, to exhort them to bring up their children in terms of general morality or good manners or general behavior. That, of course, is included. Everybody should be doing that. Non-Christian parents should be doing that. They're not doing it as we've seen, but they should. They should be concerned about good manners good general behavior, an avoidance of evil. They should teach their children to be honest, dutiful, respectful, all these various things. That's common morality. Christianity hasn't started at that point. Even pagan writers concerned about good society have always exhorted people to do that. You can't run any society without a modicum of discipline and of law and of order at any level or at any age. But that, that isn't the thing which the Apostle is talking about. He says that they are to be brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now, here is the peculiar and the specific Christian thing. In other words, the object and the goal, which should always be in the forefront of the minds of Christian parents, should be that the children should be brought up in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ as Saviour, and as law. That is the peculiar task to which Christian parents alone are called. But this is their supreme task. Our greatest desire and ambition for our children should be that they should come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior and as their Lord. I'm sure we're all examining ourselves as we are proceeding. Is that our main ambition for our children? Is that the thing that comes first? 
that they may come to know him, whom to know is life eternal, that they may know him as their Savior and that, that they may follow him as their Lord in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Very well, there are our terms, but now we come to the practical question. How is this to be done? And here is a matter, surely, that needs to be dealt with at a time such as this. You will notice in the Bible itself that there is a great deal of emphasis laid upon this. You get it in the Old Testament. I read that sixth chapter of Deuteronomy uh, as an example and illustration. Here is Moses at the end of his life, just before the children of Israel are going to enter into the promised land. He's reminding them of the law of God and he's telling them how they're to live when they enter into that land. And you notice that he's very careful to tell them how they have to teach their children this law. It's not enough that they know it and observe it themselves. They must pass it on. The children must be taught it. It must be inculcated into the children. They must never forget this. So he repeats it twice in that one chapter. You'll find it again in chapter 11 of Deuteronomy. And you'll find reference to it constantly here and there through the Old Testament. And here you see it is in the New Testament in exactly the same way. And it's in many places in the New Testament also. And uh, it's very interesting to observe in the long history of the Christian church how this particular matter always comes back again and receives great prominence at every period of revival and of reawakening. The Protestant reformers were concerned about this. And it came back again. Instruction of children in these matters. It was given great prominence. The Puritans gave it still greater prominence. And the leaders of the evangelical awakening of 200 years ago, they did exactly the same thing. And there were books that were written about this, sermons constantly preached about it. It was a matter that was given very great prominence always. It is a fact, of course. And it is a most notable fact, and one which we should be emphasizing and stressing today, that when people become Christian, it affects the whole of their lives. It isn't just something personal. It affects the married relationship. You don't get the number of divorces amongst Christian people that you do amongst non-Christian people. It affects the life of the family. It affects the children. It affects the home. It affects everything. You will find that the greatest periods in the history of this country, as of every other country, have always been those periods that have followed a religious awakening, a revival of religion. The moral tone of the whole of society has been raised. Even those who haven't become Christian are influenced and affected by it. It's a very wonderful thing. That, In other words, it's just another proof of what I've often been stressing, that there is no hope of dealing with the moral problems of society except in terms of this gospel. You will never get righteousness without godliness. But the moment people become godly, they proceed to apply it all along the line, and you get righteousness in the nation in general. But, unfortunately, we've got to face the fact that for some reason or another, this aspect of the matter has been sadly neglected in this present century. It's a part of the whole breakdown that we've been considering in life and morals and the family, the home and all these other respects. And it's a part of this whole 
mad rush of life in which we're all living and by which we're all influenced so much. For some reason or another, the family doesn't count as it used to. It isn't the center and the unit that it once was. Family life, the whole notion of it, has somehow been falling off. And what is unfortunate, most unfortunate, is that this, our less, is partly true of Christian people also. We as Christian people are less guilty of this than others, but I fear we've got to plead guilty if we are going to be honest. The old notion that you get in the Bible and that you get at these great periods of reformation, I say, of the family and what happens there, in this respect particularly, has somehow or another fallen away. And it no longer is being given the attention and the prominence that it was once. Very well. It makes it all the more important for us to discover the principles that really should govern us in this respect. And here are the ones that I would deduce from this teaching and the teaching of the Bible in general. First and foremost, this bringing up of children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord is something which is to be done in the home and by the parents. That's the emphasis. It's the emphasis in the Bible everywhere. It is not something, you know, that is to be handed over to the schools, whatever kind of school it may be. It is the duty of parents. It is their primary duty. It is their most essential duty. It is their responsibility. And they are not to hand over this responsibility to somebody else. I'm emphasizing this, of course, because we all are well aware of the fact that that is what has been done, especially in this present century. More and more parents have been transferring their responsibilities and their duties to the school. I wonder whether we've ever considered this. There is no more important influence in the life of a child than the influence of the home. The home is the unit of society, and children are born into a home and into a family. There is the circle. That is to be the chiefest influence upon their lives. There's no question about that. It is the biblical teaching everywhere. And it is always in so-called civilizations where notions concerning the home begin to deteriorate that ultimately a society disintegrates. So that I think it is the business of Christian people to consider and reconsider very carefully the whole question of boarding schools. As to whether it is right to send your children away from the peculiar special influences of the home to somewhere else. So that they spend half the year, or perhaps more or less, a little, out of the home and out of the influence of the home in some kind of institutional life deprived of all that is represented by the family influence. Can that be reconciled with the biblical teaching? Because this has become more or less the custom and the habit, hasn't it? Now, the teaching of the scripture is that the child's welfare, the child's soul, should always be the primary consideration. And all matters of prestige not to use any other term, or all matters of ambition should be put severely on one side. Anything that militates against a child's soul 
and its knowledge of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ should be rejected. The first thing we have to consider about children is, I say, their soul and their relationship to God. And however good your education may be, if it militates against that, it must be put on one side. Nothing comes before this. It is in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And it is, I say, the primary task and duty of the parents. Now, in the Old Testament, of course, it's quite clear that the father was a kind of priest in his household and in his family. He represented God. God is father. Well, fatherhood represents that in a picture. And he was the kind of priest in the family. He was responsible for not only the morals and the behavior, but for the, for the instruction of his children. The Bible's emphasis everywhere is that this is the primary duty and task of parents. And it still is. If we are Christian at all, we must realize that here this great emphasis is placed upon these fundamental units ordained by God. Marriage, family, home, you can't play fast and loose with these. It's no use saying everybody's doing this and this is a wonderful system. The question is, is it biblical, is it Christian? Is it really ministering to the interests of the soul of the child? I make a prophecy that the recovery of spirituality and of morals in this country may very well come along this line. Christian people will again have to do the thinking. Nobody else will. We'll have to be pioneers once more, as God's people have always had to be, and the others will then follow. It is important that we should be considering to what extent this system of boarding children away from home is responsible for the breakdown of morals in this country. And I'm not thinking of particular sins only. I am considering the whole attitude of children towards their own home. A home should not be a place where somebody spends a holiday. You should go away from home to have a holiday. But there are so many children to whom home is not, nothing but a place where they spend a holiday. And their parents, instead of treating them as children, of course, are giving them special treatment because they're only home for a while. And the whole notion of discipline and of bringing up the child in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord goes by the board. Oh, but you say there are many special circumstances. All right, if you can prove special circumstances, I agree. But if there are not special circumstances, this is the rule. And there are very few special circumstances. Very well, then, I say this is the primary task of the home and of the parents. And what are they to do? Well, they're to supplement the teaching of the church. And they are to apply the teaching of the church. So little can be done in a sermon. It's got to be applied, it's got to be explained, it's got to be extended, it's got to be supplemented. That's where the parents come in. And I say it has to be applied also. And if this is always right and important, how much today more than ever before? Christian parents, have you ever considered it like this? You've got a greater task than you've ever had for this reason. Consider what is being taught the children in the schools. Evolution's being taught them as a fact. They're not being told it's a mere theory which hasn't been proved. They're given the impression that it is an absolute fact and that all people of scientific knowledge and learning all believe it. And they regard it as odd if they don't. We've got to meet that situation. Higher criticism of the Bible is being taught. There are school teachers, to my own knowledge, are using textbooks which were published 30 and 40 years ago. They don't even know the change that has taken place even amongst the higher critics. Your children are being taught such things. 
They hear them on the wireless. They see them on the television. Anti-God, anti-Bible, anti-true Christianity, anti-miraculous. Who is going to counter that? Who is going to deal with that? Now, that's the business of parents. Bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. It's a whole-time job almost at the present time. The forces against us are so great so that you and I as Christian parents, I say, have this unusually difficult task today of protecting our children against these adverse forces that are coming to bear upon them with such power. Well, there's your setting. But I'm anxious to be practical so that I can finish with this verse this morning. So I come to this. The next point I would make is this. It is first and foremost a parent's duty. Secondly, how it is not to be done. There is a way of trying to do this which is quite disastrous and does much more harm than good. How is this not to be done? Well, it's never to be done mechanically. It's never to be done in a mechanical, abstract manner, almost by numbers, as if it were some sort of a drill. There have been many Christian parents who have done that. I remember having an experience once some ten years or so ago. I went to stay with some friends of mine. I was preaching in the area, and I always stay with them. And I found the wife, the mother in that family, in a state of acute distress. And she and her husband and myself were talking, and I discovered the cause of her distress. It was this. A certain lady had been there lecturing that very week, and she was giving her address, which she took right around the country, on how to bring up all the children in your family as good Christians. Marvelous, wonderful. She'd got five or six children, this lecturer had, and she'd so organized her home and her life. She'd finished all the domestic part of the work by nine o'clock, I think it was, in the morning, and then she proceeded to tell them how she had brought up all her children, every one of them was a fine Christian, it was so easy, so wonderful, and here was this poor mother with two children in a state of acute distress, feeling that she was a complete and an absolute failure. What had I got to say to her? Well, what I had to say was obvious. It was just this. I said, wait a bit. Wait a bit. How old are these children of this lady? I happen to know myself, and she knew also. Not one of them, I think, at that time was above the age of 16 or something like that. I said, wait a bit. This lady tells you they're all Christians. She's brought them up like this. It's so easy, so wonderful. All you need is a scheme, and then you carry out your scheme, and it can be done. Wait a bit, I said. The story may be different in a few years, and alas, God knows it is different. I wouldn't like to say that any one of those children is a Christian. Some of them I know are openly anti-Christian. And have turned their backs upon it all. You can't bring up children like that by numbers. It's not mechanical. And in any case, it was cold. I heard of the same lady in another part of the country. She'd been giving her same lecture there. But there, there was somebody who had a little understanding and insight. One lady listening to the address made a very good comment, I thought. She turned to some friends on the way out and said, I thank God she wasn't my mother. Yes, well, all right, it, there is something laughable about it, but there's something tragic about it. What she meant was this, you see. There was no love there, there was no warmth there. Here was a woman who was proud of herself. She does it all by numbers, mechanically. What a wonderful mother she is. This other woman detected that there was no love there. There was no real 
understanding, there was nothing to warm the heart of the child. The child's not a machine. You can't do this mechanically. Secondly, I say it must never be done in an entirely negative or repressive manner. If you give children the impression that to be religious is to be miserable and always to be prohibiting this or that and just repressing them, you'll drive them into the arms of the devil. You'll send them into the world. It must never be entirely negative and repressive. I mustn't stop with these things. It has been so often. I meet tragedies all over the place. People come and talk to me and at the end of a service and they say, Do you know, I haven't been in a chapel for 20 years or so. And I say, why not? And then they tell me. They've reacted against the harshness and the repressive character of the religion under which they were brought up. They had no conception of Christianity at all. It wasn't Christianity. It was a man-made, harsh religion. I was talking about this in passing Friday night. It was a false Puritanism. There are certain people, you know, who only take out the worst out of the Puritans and never have understood the best. They've seen the negative but have never seen the positive. It does great harm. Thirdly, we must never bring up our children in the nurture and admonition in the Lord in such a way as to make little prigs and hypocrites of them. And I've seen a great deal of that in my time. There is nothing that I know of that is so sad and at the same time so revolting as to hear children using pious phrases which they don't understand. But their parents are proud of them. They sort of say, listen to them. Isn't it wonderful? Little prigs and hypocrites. Too young to understand. They can't know at that age. I know that there are many children who like to pray, play at preaching and things like that. Oh, that's all right, that's children. But when you get the parents thinking it's wonderful and putting up the children to do it before the admiring gaze of adults, I say it's almost blasphemy. And it is disastrous for the child. That's to turn our children into little prigs. To make little hypocrites of them. And then my last uh, negative at this point is this. We must never force a child to a decision. Oh, the trouble and the havoc that has been wrought by this. Isn't it marvelous, said the children? My little child, age five, decided for Christ. Or some older age. Pressure being brought to bear. It should never be done. You're violating the personality. And apart from that, of course, you're displaying a profound ignorance of the way of salvation. You can make a little child decide anything. Of course, we've got the power and the ability to do so, but it's wrong. It's unchristian. It's not spiritual. In other words, we must never be too direct in this matter. Never be too direct, especially with a child. Never be too emotional. If your child feels uncomfortable as you're talking to it about these things, or if you're talking to somebody else's child, if the child feels uncomfortable, it's you who are wrong. The child should never be made to feel uncomfortable. You're too direct, or you're too emotional, or you're bringing pressure to bear. And that's not the way to do it. Again, I've known some real tragedies in this respect. I can think at this moment of two young men in particular. I remember them before they reached the age of 15 or 16, and their parents were always holding them forward. One of them even used to write about their children. And there they seemed to be most marvelous, outstanding Christians. Both of them repudiate the Christian faith utterly and entirely by today. They have no use for it at all. And they've gone plunged into the life of the world. Oh, Christian parents, 
You're handling a, a life, you know, you're handling a personality, you're handling a soul. Don't you bring your pressure to bear here. You're never asked to do that. Don't you force your children. I know the anxiety, it's very natural, but we are spiritual, we are filled with the spirit, remember. Never violate a personality, never bring any unfair pressure to bear upon a child. It must never be too direct, it must never be too emotional. It must never be done so that the children may feel that they're disloyal to us if they don't do it. That's unforgivable. These things must be kept clear. Well, what's the true way? Well, let me give you some headings. I suggest that this is the true way to do it. There used to be, at one time in people's houses, I used to see a great deal of them as I went around preaching. I don't see them so often now. There used to be little cards hanging on the wall with this phrase on it. Christ is the head of this house. Well, I'm not an advocate of putting up the cards as such, but you know there was something in it. You remember the instructions that were given to the children of Israel? Write them on the doorposts. Why? Well, you know, we're such forgetful creatures. Perhaps we've overdone this matter. We've gone too far, perhaps, to the other extreme. We need to be reminded, you know, the early Protestants, they used to paint the Ten Commandments on the wall of their churches. There was something in it. We are so ready to forget the Ten Commandments. Well, now they'd put up the Christ as the head of this house, whether you put up the card or not. That's the great thing. That the impression should always be given that Christ is the head of this house, of this home. How do you do that? Well, you do it like this, you see. You do it by your general conduct and example. These things are obvious, aren't they? I'm merely mentioning them. But the parents should be living in such a way that the child should always have a feeling that they themselves are under Christ. Christ is the head. So there should be everything in the conduct and the behavior. I was indicating this last Sunday morning so I don't stay with it. But above all, there should be an atmosphere of love. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. That's our controlling text in this as in all these particular applications. Well, the fruit of the Spirit is love. And if there's a home filled with an atmosphere of the love produced by the Spirit, well, most of your problem is solved, you know. This is the thing that does the work. Not your direct pressures and appeals. This atmosphere of love. What else? Well, the, the general conversation. This is how we are to do it. At the table, wherever you are, general conversation. You listen to the news. And conversation begins about the news. Affairs are being discussed. International affairs, politics, and all these things. Now, this is how we bring up our children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. We are to see to it that even such general conversation is always in Christian terms. We bring in the Christian point of view. They will find, they'll hear other people talking about the same things. They may be walking along the road and listening to two men arguing about the very things that they'd heard discussed at home. But they'll notice one big difference. The whole approach was different at home. It wasn't approached in the same way as these two non-Christian men are, are doing the thing. In other words, the Christian point of view must come in over the whole of life, whether you're discussing international affairs or local affairs or personal matters. Whatever it is, always under this general heading of Christianity. It's a, most, it's a most vital thing, that. You see, it works like this. The children unconsciously, 
become aware of the fact that there is a governing principle in the lives of their parents. They're thinking that everything else is different. The whole atmosphere is different. And they gradually and consciously become aware of this. There's a, such a thing as a Christian point of view. And that's a great victory that once they get hold of that, the problem becomes much easier. Then the next question is, of course, answering questions. There you get your opportunity. Sometimes extremely difficult, I know. But we, give, we are given the opportunity, answering questions. Now, I, I like the way that it was put there in that sixth chapter of Deuteronomy. Do you remember it there in that 20th verse? It's put like this. And when thy son asketh thee in time to come, saying... What mean the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments which the Lord our God hath commanded you? Then thou shalt say unto thy son, We were Pharaoh's bondmen in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and so on. Now, there it is. In other words, a day will come when the children will ask a question. They'll say, Why, why don't you do this? The father and mother of my little friend, they do this, that, and the other. You don't do that. Why don't you do that? What a heaven-sent opportunity of bringing up your child in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Ah, yes, but if we are to take it, we must know the reason why, mustn't we? If you can't give a reason for the hope that is in you, you can't bring up your children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? My friend's father comes home drunk. You don't. They spend their evenings in public houses. You don't. They spend their nights in the clubs. They spend their nights dancing. You don't. Why? What's the difference? And you mustn't brush the child aside. And say, oh, well, that's it. We're all different, you see, and this is how we prefer. No, no. You say, look here. We're all alike fundamentally. And we behave in this different way, not because we're different people. It isn't that. It isn't that I've got one temperament and he's got another. We're all born in sin. We're all slaves. There's a, something wrong within us all. There's an evil principle. We don't know God. And you see, the difference is this, that I've come to see that and to see how wrong certain things are. But I'd still be like that were it not that God sent his only son, this Jesus of whom you've heard into the world, to rescue us, to deliver us. And you give your gospel. You, you decide how much to give. It depends upon the age of the child or not. But answer his questions. Let him know. Let him know exactly when he asks his questions. You don't feist it on him. You don't preach at him. But if he asks his question, why this? Well, tell him. Tell him. Tell him very simply. And tell him more and more as he gets older. But be ready always to answer the questions. Uh, know your facts. Understand your gospel. Build yourself up in it so that you can impart it and pass it on. And thus, you'll be able to bring up your children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And then you can guide their reading. Biographies. Biographies will appeal to them. Guide their reading in various ways to turn their minds in this right direction. What else? Well, be careful always whenever you're going to have a meal, to return thanks to God for it and to ask his blessing upon it. It's a great thing, that. That's not done by anybody except those who are Christian these days. But if your children are just accustomed to hearing you thanking God and returning thanks and asking a blessing, it'll do something for them. Go further 
have a family altar. What do you mean? I mean this. That once a dinner at every day as a family, you should meet together around the word of God. The father, I say, is the head of the house. Let him read a portion of scripture. And let him offer a simple prayer. It needn't be long. But let him acknowledge God. Let him thank God for the Lord Jesus Christ. Let the children hear the word of God. If they ask questions, answer them. Give them instruction as you can. Be wise, be judicious. Don't make it something hateful to them. Make it something that they look forward to, something that they delight in. Do it in such a way. But have your family altar. In other words, for me to sum it all up and to close. The way to do this is to make Christianity attractive. We should give our children the impression that the most wonderful thing in the world is Christianity. And that there is nothing in life comparable to being a Christian. We should create within them the desire to be like us. They see us and they see the joy that we have in it all. And the way we glory in it all. And the way we marvel and wonder at it all. The thrill of it all. They should be saying to themselves, Oh, I'm longing to be as old as they are so that I can get in it what they're getting and enjoy it as they enjoy it. That's a way to do it. Not mechanical, legal, repressive, forcing. No, no. But in all we are and all we do and all we say, just letting them know that we ourselves are the bond slaves of Jesus Christ. That God in his grace has opened our eyes and awakened us to the most glorious thing in the world. And that our greatest and deepest desire for them is that they may enter into the same knowledge and have the same joy. And have the highest privilege of all in this world of serving him and living to the praise of the glory of his grace. Whatever their work, whatever their avocation, whether it is business or profession or manual labor or preaching, doesn't matter what it is. Do all things for the glory of God. Bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord.